You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Please take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Two weeks ago, Jason encouraged us from Acts 4, 1 through 22 to see opposition not as a roadblock or a detour from what God wants, but to see opposition as opportunity. You see, friends, the way forward for the people of God, the way the gospel will go to the ends of the earth is through opposition and suffering. This is the way of gospel progress. We know this to be true, both biblically, which we'll see all throughout the book of Acts, and historically. To give you just one example... Almost all of you know about the work of Hudson Taylor in taking the gospel to China. You've, you've heard that when he left England in the mid-1800s, there were an estimated 300,000 believers in China. That's, that's 300,000 out of 450 million people, roughly 0.06%. Along with Taylor, God has used many people to reach the Chinese. In fact, as As part of the China Inland Mission, a young couple named John and Betty Stam, both graduates of Moody Bible Institute, began serving together in China in 1933. After arriving where they were assigned to serve in November of 1934, on December 6th, something very unexpected happened. While they were home with their three-month-old daughter, Helen, all three were captured by communist soldiers. Biographer Vance Christie describes what happened after they were captured. Two days later, on the morning of December 8, 1934, John and Betty Stam were marched through the streets. The communist soldiers wanted to make an example of the foreigners At one point, a Chinese shopkeeper tried to persuade the soldiers to spare their lives, but when the soldiers searched this man's home, it was found to contain a Bible and a hymn book. So he, too, was pulled from his home to join the Stams. John was then forced to kneel, and he was beheaded. Betty and the shopkeeper were killed just moments later. Before Betty was murdered, she she hid her little daughter in a sleeping bag. And God protected little Helen. She was later found by a Chinese pastor, taken to Betty's parents, who were missionaries in China. Christie offers the following conclusion. The deaths of John and Betty Stam deeply impacted Christians around the world. The events of those days were widely publicized and many hundreds of people were inspired by their example to become missionaries and to support foreign missions. This is the last line. They spoke as loudly in death as they had in life. You see, the Stams faced deadly opposition, but even through their death, God was causing the gospel 
to flourish in China, a country where there are now as many as 150 million Christians. Brothers and sisters, God is sovereignly working in his people through opposition and suffering to make us more desperate for and reliant upon the Holy Spirit who will in turn create a gospel boldness in us to make Christ known. And this incredible work of God isn't limited to apostles and vocational missionaries, but this is the way God works in all of his people. And we'll see this in God's word, especially next week. I want you to see a progression in our text this morning. And here it is. Opposition comes. The people pray. The Spirit brings boldness. Christ is magnified. Opposition, prayer, boldness, growth. Look at verse 23 with me and we'll read the whole text. Acts chapter 4, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord... Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. This progression we find in Acts 4 and really throughout the book of Acts begins with God's people facing opposition. Again, that's what Jason so helpfully taught us two weeks ago. But we we pick up this morning by, by noticing their response. When opposition comes, the people pray. The people pray. Again, verse 23. 
When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. Reading through the first four chapters of Acts, you cannot help but notice that this early church is marked by prayer. They are a praying community. Prayer is at the very center of who they are and what they do. John Calvin talked about prayer as the chief exercise of the Christian faith. And Jonathan Edwards said that prayer is as natural an expression of faith as breathing is to life. And friends, this is precisely what we find as the New Testament church takes shape. They are constantly praying. After the ascension, awaiting the outpouring of the Spirit, family members and followers of Jesus are gathered to pray in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. In Acts 1, 21 through 24, as the apostles face the choice of who will replace Judas, they pray. After 3,000 sinners are converted, Acts 2.42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Then again in Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 47, the text indicates that these new believers offered prayers of glad thanksgiving, praising God. And now in chapter 4, as Peter and John return to their fellow believers, they offer a report on what they've experienced, and they begin to what? Pray. Friends, prayer is communing with God. It is drawing near to God. That's staggering, isn't it? Through Jesus Christ, redeemed sinners can enter into the throne room of heaven where we will find the creator of all things with his ear bent toward us, ready to listen and to provide what we so desperately need. How often are you impacted freshly by the reality of what's taking place when you pray. And this is why the author of Hebrews implores us, let us then, based on the work of Christ, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love this reminder from John MacArthur. Prayer is more than just the privilege of communing with God, though it is certainly that. Prayer is the opportunity for God to display His glory. Prayer gives God a vehicle by which He can demonstrate who He is. And then MacArthur recounts this. An old saint put it something like this. True prayer brings the mind to the immediate contemplation of God's character and holds it there until the believer's soul is properly impressed. I think this is exactly what we find in verses 24 through 30. A group of people communing with God, contemplating God's character until their souls are properly impressed. 
We see this in the content of the prayer which Luke records for us. And I want, I want to point out four important affirmations within this prayer. And with each affirmation, we find instruction for our own prayer lives. First, notice, they affirm the sovereignty of God. They affirm the sovereignty of God. How do they begin their prayer? Verse 24, sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In case you're confused about what sovereignty means. Oh, brothers and sisters, if God is not sovereign over everything, then prayer makes no sense at all. But if God is sovereign, if he created and now upholds the universe by the word of his power, if he works all things after the counsel of his own will, if the psalmist is correct when he declares in Psalm 135 that the Lord does whatever he pleases him in the heavens and on the earth in the seas and all their depths, if this is true, then prayer is an astonishing gift to believers. You see, prayer, prayer is an act of hopeful desperation by those who are completely powerless, right? Prayer is an act of hopeful desperation by those who are completely powerless. Isn't this true? Parents with a wayward or rebellious child. If you could change your child's heart, you would. But you can't. So you pray. Isn't this true, husband or wife who feels stuck in a painful and difficult relationship? If you could change your spouse's heart, you would. But you can't. So you pray. Isn't this true, friends who are in the midst of unexpected suffering? If you could bring healing, you would. If you could calm your heart and drive out fear, you would. But you can't. You can't, so you pray. Isn't this true, brother or sister, who is crushed under the weight of besetting sin? If you could only adopt some new plan or strategy that would bring victory and relief, you would, but you can't. And so you pray. We cry out to God in prayer because He alone possesses the power to act. He is infinitely wise and guides the simple. He is infinitely powerful and gives strength to the weak. He is infinitely loving and extends kindness to those who are hurting. He is infinitely gracious and brings healing to the broken. He is the sovereign Lord. And He rules over every square inch of His creation. To bow in prayer, 
To bow in prayer before anyone or anything other than God is an act of pure folly. But for the child of God, for you, for you, brothers and sisters, when you pray, you are running into the loving arms of your heavenly Father who rules the entire universe, and yet he invites you to make your every request known to him, and he hears you. I can think of nothing that motivates prayer more than this. The Lord is sovereign, and he loves you. Second, notice they affirm the authority of Scripture. Verse 25, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, and then Psalm 2 is quoted, a psalm written by David, but truly and ultimately authored by whom? The Holy Spirit. In in quoting Psalm 2, 1 and 2, these believers remind themselves of God's providence over all of history. So, So do you see what they're doing here? They're connecting They're connecting what is happening around them with what Scripture has already revealed. Psalm 2 describes the victory of the Lord and His anointed one against the conspiracy of the nations. Psalm 2 is foretelling gospel events. The descendant of David would suffer rejection but would emerge victorious as ruler over all the nations. And friends, how would this happen? It would happen through the miraculous birth, the sinless life, the substitutionary death, the glorious resurrection, and the promised return of Jesus. And that was all revealed in the Scripture beforehand. The Word of God is informing the prayers of God's people. I think there's a great lesson for us here in a number of different ways. But let me mention one. We have the tendency sometimes to see what's happening on the stage of the world. And we interpret Scripture in light of what's happening. Instead of viewing all that's happening through the lens of what's already been revealed to us in God's Word. One of those leads to fear, anxiety, and doubt. The other one leads to confidence and peace and rest. You know the story. Apply it. Let it inform the way you pray. Notice a third affirmation. They affirm the lordship of Jesus. When I refer to the lordship of Jesus, I'm saying this. As a result of Christ's resurrection and ascension, he has been enthroned at the right hand of God the Father with universal dominion. We see this most clearly in Ephesians chapter 1, that great doxology at the beginning of the letter. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ 
when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Friends, as the victorious Christ, Jesus sits on the throne of the universe. And here's how this connects to Psalm 2. God told his people beforehand that the nations would conspire against the Messiah, yet the Messiah would triumph and rule over all of them. This prayer reveals that the early church understood that what they had witnessed with their own eyes through the resurrection and ascension of Jesus is what Scripture foretold. In fact, fact, they have such a handle on the sovereignty of God and the lordship of Christ, that they retell the events of the crucifixion with a, with a pretty theologically robust spin on it. Look at verse 27 again. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. I love what Spurgeon says about these two verses. He says that God's people are singing of the wickedness of humanity and the triumph that God gets over it. And so this is the sum and substance of the song. That when wicked men, listen to this, that when wicked men think God's decrees will be forever put away by the destruction of His Son, they themselves are actually doing what God has predestined to take place. The wildest discord, Spurgeon says, makes harmony in the ear of God. A person may be in rebellion against the Most High, but he is still abjectly the slave of God's predestination. So, Spurgeon concludes, the ferocity of kings and priests does but fulfill the counsel of God. Friends, what does... What does an unwavering belief in the sovereignty of God and the lordship of Jesus produce? Well, what do we find in our text? As the people of God faced opposition, they weren't panicking. They weren't overcome with worry. They viewed the world and all that was happening around them through the lens of Scripture. So instead of being marked by fear, they were marked by boldness. They were marked by boldness. And and why not? Jesus Christ is Lord of the universe. Therefore, all the nations, all the peoples of the earth belong to him. 
Oh, brothers and sisters, when we see the nations raging against Jesus, when we see our own nation mocking the things of God, when we read stories about or visit places that seem to be taunting God with their laws and their lifestyles, why do we panic? What do we have to be afraid of? You see, far too often we betray the fact that either we haven't read the Bible or we don't believe it. Just as sure as Christ has conquered the grave and ascended to heaven, He will return in victory. So, calm down. Play with your kids. Eat good food. Laugh with friends. Give generously to those in need. Joyfully sacrifice whatever you can to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth. Gather with your church family and sing loudly and joyfully to your king who rules and reigns in perfect holiness and unmitigated power and glory. Friends, let let this Let this rest on you. The fourth and final affirmation found in this prayer builds on the first three. It's only when you believe that God is sovereign and Scripture is true and Jesus is Lord that you will set aside your own safety, comfort, and security for the advance of the gospel. This prayer affirms the priority of gospel advance. Look at verse 29 again. And now, Lord, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. You would expect the people to ask God for deliverance, wouldn't you? They're facing opposition. They've pledged their allegiance to Jesus, defying the very authorities that put Jesus to death. But again, what do we find? Personal comfort, safety, and security take a backseat to the advance of the gospel. Instead of deliverance, the people ask for boldness. Instead of retreating, they ask God for the grace and the strength to press forward in Jesus' name for Jesus' fame. What does it say? Grant to your servants to continue to speak your words with all boldness. In verse 30, these believers essentially say, God, you keep doing what you do. Stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. But, but if you're going to do, but if we're going to do, if we're going to do what you have called us to do in the face of opposition, then we need the Spirit to come in power. There's no other way. Brothers and sisters, this is exactly where we find ourselves, isn't it? We are a feeble and weak people. 
We have a desire to make Christ known, but we are absolutely powerless to do so without the power of the Holy Spirit. We need God to do what only he can do. And then we need the Holy Spirit to fill us and empower us and propel us forward on mission. We need wisdom and we need grace and we need strength. And the Holy Spirit is the source of all those things. Now, if you're like me, you're finding the example of these early Christians convicting. Their desire for boldness over deliverance. In fact, you might be finding this so convicting that you're going to try to conjure up some way to dismiss it. And I might be speaking from experience. Right? We grasp for excuses. Like we... We live in a very different world. People are being persecuted for their faith. Government authorities aren't hostile toward the things of God. But friends, we know this is not the case at all. Persecution still very much exists. And governments everywhere stand against what is righteous. So maybe, maybe the big difference between the early church and our church doesn't have anything to do with how the world has changed, but it has to do with how Christians have changed. There's a word I want you to notice in verse 29. It's the word continue. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Before we can continue, before we can continue to declare the gospel with boldness, we have to start. So let's pray. That would be a good place to start. Let's pray. Let's pray for boldness. Let's pray that the Holy Spirit will awaken us to see with great clarity the sovereignty of God, the Lordship of Christ, the eternal plight of sinners, the power of the gospel, and the grace we need to declare Jesus with boldness. Maybe then, maybe then we will experience something like what the early church did. So let me pick up the progression we find in the text again. Opposition comes. The people pray. In verse 31, the Spirit brings boldness. I love this. I love this. When, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The people of God ask for increased boldness. They are asking for spirit-empowered conviction, courage, and urgency. Boldness is not the ability to annoy people by being obnoxious about your faith. In fact, you can be a naturally timid person and be a bold witness for Jesus. To be bold is the opposite 
of being half-hearted, fearful, or indifferent. To be bold is, is to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit and to act. To act in conviction in the face of some threat. So let me, let me draw your attention to a couple of things here. First, notice the source of the boldness. It's the Holy Spirit. This is emphasized pretty clearly in the text. The, the place where they were gathered shakes. This means that God is going to manifest his power in some unique way. The people have prayed and God has heard their cry, so get ready. This is reminiscent of Exodus 19 where God is preparing to give Moses his commandments and the whole mountain trembles. And not only does the house begin to shake, but we're actually told that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They have already received the Spirit. They are indwelt by the Spirit. But here God grants their request for boldness and perseverance and joy by filling them afresh with the Spirit. So I, I want you to hear this. Gospel boldness, gospel boldness is not something you can manufacture. Gospel boldness is not something you can manufacture. It isn't a work of the flesh. You and I cannot simply decide to be more bold and voila, here we go. No, true Gospel boldness comes only by the Spirit. So we follow the example of our brothers and sisters here and we pray. We pray for the Spirit to make us bold for Jesus. The second thing I want you to see here is that boldness is not an end in and of itself. The people don't ask for boldness and the Spirit doesn't bring boldness because it's a heck of a lot nicer to live in a hostile world with boldness rather than fear. Friends, Spirit-empowered boldness is not given for the personal benefit of individual believers. It is given so that Jesus Christ will be declared without apology and reservation so that sinners will turn in repentance and faith and be rescued from their sin by God in Christ. That's the end and the aim, the result Friends, the result and ultimate aim of Christian boldness is Christ magnified and glorified. This is what we'll see next week when we pick up our study in verse 32. But I want to leave you with I want to leave you with another example the history of the church and the advance of the gospel is full. It's full of staggering ways in which we've seen this very progression play itself out. Opposition comes. God's people pray. The Spirit brings boldness. 
Christ is magnified. Opposition, prayer, boldness, growth. So in, in closing, consider another missionary example. Think about the five Ecuadorian missionary martyrs who sought to take the gospel to the Wadani people. Many of you know the names, Pete Fleming, Jim Elliott, Ed McCauley, Roger Udarian, and Nate Saint. The opposition they faced led to their deaths. In response, the Holy Spirit awakened His people to pray. To plead with God to bring triumph out of tragedy. And friends, what did God do in the years that followed the death of these five men? Well, just three years later, in 1959, Nate, Saint's sister Rachel, and Jim Elliott's widow Elizabeth made contact again with the tribe. Rachel Saint remained with them for 30 years. And Steve Saint spent summers there from the age of nine. One of the most amazing developments that took place after the men were murdered and, and these family members returned to Ecuador is that a native man that was involved in the massacre of the five missionaries converted to Christ. His name is Minge. He not only became a Christian, but he became a pastor and an elder of the church in his village. Minke also adopted Nate Saint's son Steve as his tribal son. I came across an article this past week that not only recounted the incredible story of God's sovereign work in using extraordinary suffering to bring many to saving faith, but, but I want you to hear something else. God often uses the bold suffering of his people to accomplish far more than we could ever imagine. James Boster is an anthropologist from the University of Connecticut. He studied the history of Wadani revenge murders and concluded that Christian conversion prevented self-extinction. You see, deadly cycles of revenge had scattered these people into small paranoid factions. Attempted truces failed because their language had no words for abstractions like peace. Boster observed that because Christianity was brought by kin of the men they had killed, but who befriended them in return, it became a powerful way to signal commitment to nonviolence, he said. So here's what Boster's research uncovered. From a dwindling 600 members in 1958, the tribe had grown to 2,000. The missionary deaths really present, represent a kind of martyrdom in the best Christian sense, said Dr. Boster, who is not an evangelical Christian. Now listen closely to his conclusion. At first blush, their death was needless. At first blush, their death was needless as they were there on a mission of peace. But in the long run, 
the fact that their kin went back in peace to teach was a strong signal that the Wadani could trust both the messengers and the message. Opposition comes. God's people pray. The Spirit brings boldness. Christ is magnified. Do you realize? Do you realize that every spiritual resource that John and Betty Stam possessed, and every spiritual resource the Ecuadorian missionaries possessed, and every spiritual resource the members of the early church possessed, do you realize, brothers and sisters, that you possess? these spiritual resources as well. All of them. You belong to Christ and you are filled with the Spirit. Cry out in desperate prayer. Be bold for Jesus. And let's see what happens. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would work by your Spirit to do what only you can do. There is no sermon that by itself could create a boldness in your people. There's no story. And yet we believe, Holy Spirit, that you will use your word declared that you will use the examples of your servants, that you will use your living and active word to pierce our hearts, to convict and change us, to bring boldness for the glory of Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus Christ deserves the praise of every person. We believe that the church exists to carry out this mission. We believe, God, that you are sovereignly working in the hearts and lives of those who are around us every single day at work in our neighborhoods, in our own households, that you sovereignly are working, drawing men and women, boys and girls, to yourself. But how will they hear unless someone preaches, someone declares the gospel? So Holy Spirit, Invade our complacency. Invade our aloofness. Stir us up. Awaken us. 
reorient our priorities, do whatever you have to do. And in the end, make us bold. Make us bold for Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.